Money in Politics. That's the topic for this next hour with our two guests, Kevin Kennedy and Todd Berry. Kevin Kennedy is the former director of the former Wisconsin Accountability Board, and Todd Berry is the president of the Wisconsin Taxpayers Alliance. The talk took place on October 5th, 2016, at the Capitol Lakes Retirement Center in Madison and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. There are study materials on the League's position of money in politics at their website at lwvdanecounty.org. But first we hear from Dorothy Wheeler, the League's program chair, who introduces Kevin Kennedy and then later Todd Berry. We're so happy tonight to have Kevin Kennedy, a name I know you recognize, and Mr. Todd Berry. To begin with, Kevin Kennedy left state services on June 29, 2016, with the dissolution of the Wisconsin Government Accountability Board. He served as director and general counsel for the Wisconsin Government Accountability Board from November 2007 through June 2016. Before assuming the top staff position for the GAB, he was executive director and before that, legal counsel for the Wisconsin State Elections Board. Kevin served as Wisconsin's chief election official from August 1983 until June 2016. No other individual served longer in that position. Kevin is a Madison native. He graduated from the University of Wisconsin and from the University of Wisconsin Law School. Mr. Kennedy, if you would. Did you know that in 1758, when George Washington ran for a seat in the Virginia House of Burgesses, he spent his entire campaign budget, 50 pounds, on 160 gallons of liquor <laughs> to sate the thirst of 391 voters who showed up to vote that day. Now, much of what I say about money in politics will undoubtedly seem very cynical, but I'd like to illustrate a couple things, starting with the George Washington uh, vignette, about how, things, how money has been an integral part of politics for a long, long time. Um, but my goal is not to leave you cynical. It's really uh, to give you some resolution to increase your vigilance of the political process, and even more, to inspire you to encourage others uh, and to support others to engage in vigilance, the vigilance that we require to hold our elected officials and those who want to be our elected officials accountable uh, and responsive to the voters, to the public. Now, that 50 pounds that George Washington spent would be about $8,112 in today's currency. Um, it purchased 28 gallons of rum, 50 gallons of rum punch, 34 gallons of wine, 46 gallons of beer, and two gallons of cider royal, which sounds like it might be pretty tasty. Um, and yet, Washington's primary concern when he was reminiscing about this was that he had not spent enough to get elected. In his words, he feared he, quote, spent too sparingly, too sparing a hand 
on this. Three years earlier, Washington had chose not to spend campaign funds on alcohol, uh, even though this was the practice at the time, and he lost his campaign for a seat in the House of Burgesses, 271 to 40. In 1758, the alcohol fuel campaign netted him 331 votes for the 391 who cast ballots in that election. Of course, the electorate was much different then. White, Protestant, landholders, and of course, all male. And I rather doubt today's voters would be swayed by a quart and a half of alcohol each. Although, we may need more than that to stomach the choices presented on November 8th. Another illustration, Saturday, June 17, 1972. Five burglars are caught in the Democratic National Committee's campaign offices at the Watergate Hotel and Business Complex on the Potomac. They're quickly linked to the committee to reelect the president, affectionately known as Creep. This spurred an investigation that captivated the country from 1972 through President Nixon's resignation in 1974. Among the many sordid things revealed during the Watergate hearings was the fact that Nixon re-election campaign received millions of dollars in secret funds, contrary to the recently enacted campaign finance laws of 1971. This included $200,000 in a briefcase from Robert Vesco. People remember that name. Uh, he was a fun, fun financier associated with very risky investments who went on the lam in 1973 when criminal charges were looming. 100000 in a safe deposit box from Howard Hughes, a very reclusive entrepreneur who captured our imagination, uh, known as one of the most financially successful individuals in the world. $2 million from W. Clement Stone, a businessman and philanthropist who had actually hoped to secure an ambassadorship, which was really the currency of campaign contributions. The Nixon campaign made it a practice to sell ambassadorships. Unfortunately for Mr. Stone, he wanted Britain, and that was already taken by someone else. Um, Thirteen corporations were also provided $780,000 in illegal corporate campaign contributions. That's what we learned about funding despite changes in the law and led to some additional revisions. I imagine these revelations at that time gave a whole new meaning to a term that was very popular at that time. If you remember the term expletive deleted. On September 14th, the Guardian of this year, the Guardian, a British publication, released a trove of documents from the John Doe investigation. <laughs> Maybe you need that quart and, quart and a half of alcohol to look at that and to get a picture. I mean, these documents reveal the extensive groveling of our current governor to a myriad of special interests to secure funding to shape the message surrounding the activities of 2011 and 2012. So, how do these events relate to money in Wisconsin politics? The last one is pretty clear, but, you know, there have been a series of legislative initiatives and government oversight entities and court cases that have mapped our journey from the 18th century through the beginning of the 21st century. We've always wanted to do something to call people to account. And the Washington practice was accepted practice at the time, but there were people who were challenging it back then. And there's a whole history of attempts to reform 
our campaign finance laws. Um, in Wisconsin, this was reflected in a series of laws enacted beginning in 1897 with our first Corrupt Practices Act. In 1905, corporations were banned from making contributions in political campaigns. Um, in 1911, uh, campaign finance disclosure law was put into place. Uh, so we go back a long way in terms of trying in Wisconsin to have some kind of an impact on holding people accountable, providing ins information, which I think is really the key here, to members of the public. In the wake of Watergate, several states, including Wisconsin, began a series of campaign finance reforms. In 1973, Governor Lucy created a campaign finance study committee under the leadership of Professor David Adamati. Uh, he was head of the political science department in, at the UW-Madison, but also was Lucy's secretary of revenue. Um, the committee report really established the foundation for major changes in campaign finance regulation, uh, including the creation of the Bipartisan State Elections Board, uh, which began operations July 1st, 1974, and on April 1st, 1979, some fresh-eyed, still-bearded, but darker-beard young lawyer joined as legal counsel to the board. Board members were nominated for gubernatorial appointment by legislative leaders and political party chairs. The legislation contained very strict contribution limits, uh, spending limits, along with detailed reporting requirements. But shortly after that, the seminal U.S. Supreme Court case came down, Buckley v. Vallejo. The court struck down spending limits, uh, established the principle that campaign finance laws must be narrowly tailored to regulate only clearly election campaign activity, activity which the court described as that to expressly advocate the election or defeat of clearly identified candidates. And we've been wrangling about what that means uh, for years. Um, shortly after that, in 1978, corporations were permitted to spend money in referendum elections uh, in the Bellotti decision, the First National Bank of Boston versus Bellotti, and then uh, the ban on corporate contributions directly to candidates was still in place if the states wanted to do that with a Supreme Court decision in 1990 called Austin versus the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. In Wisconsin, we continued to try to do things to provide more of a window uh, of opportunity. In 1977, the Wisconsin legislature enacted a comprehensive public funding program for legislative and statewide offices, including Justice of the Supreme Court, and State Superintendent of Public Instruction. This permitted the imposition of spending limits in those campaigns and limited the role of PAC contributions to fund political campaigns. Minnesota was following a similar path in the 80s and 90s to Wisconsin. But unlike Wisconsin, Minnesota continually adapted its campaign finance and public funding laws while Wisconsin chose to stagnate with no consensus on how to move forward. How many of you remember May 20th, 2001. You have to be a Wisconsin State Journal subscriber, actually. That's when the caucus scandal was revealed by D. Hall and her company, um, describing how employees in the four legislative caucuses secretly campaigned on state time from their state offices. It really wasn't a very closely held secret uh, among anybody who was involved in politics. The question was who was going to rat out who on this. Um, and it as in most scandals, it took a jilted lover to get the ear of a reporter. As the caucus scandal unraveled, 
and the decisions of the bipartisan state elections board became more overtly partisan and the nonpartisan state ethics board really chose not to do much of anything, there really became a legislative consensus for reform that coalesced in 2007. And there's a lot of factors that led to this. And a lot of people point to the caucus scandal. I like to say it also was designed, as many of these laws are, for the convenience of the regulated. I can't tell you how many times I would get a phone call where someone would say to me, um, how's this question work? And I'd say, well, here's the campaign finance implications, but if you want to know the ethics or lobbying implications, you've got to call Roth Judd over at the Ethics Board. People really wanted one-stop shopping, and that was one of the keys uh, to the creation of the Government Accountability Board. But what was important about the Government Accountability Board is instead of partisan nominees given to the governor serving two-year terms, we got six-year terms of people who had a wealth of experience. One is nonpartisan elected officials, two, trained decision makers. They also had the power to initiate their own investigations and were given a sum sufficient budget to conduct those investigations. The GAB operated during one of the most tumultuous times in Wisconsin political history. From February of 2011 through the late spring of that year, the state capitol building was surrounded and occupied by thousands of protesters seeking some measure of influence on the political decisions that were being made by a legislature under single party control. The Guardian disclosures provide a unique window into what was really happening in the wake of the 2011 budget repair bill deliberations and its ultimate enactment as 2011 Act 10. As can be seen from the documents on the Guardian's website, the protesters had some very strong competition for the hearts and minds and purses of the political decision makers. Because of the Republicans' ability to effectively control the legislative agenda, they're in a position to mold public policy to their liking. Court decisions during this time were also having a significant impact on the role of money in political campaigns. The right of corporations and other groups to spend unlimited funds on issue advocacy and independent expenditures was recognized by the Supreme Court in uh, Wisconsin Right to Life and Citizens United cases. You're listening to Money and Politics with speakers Kevin Kennedy and Todd Barry. Kevin Kennedy is the former director of the former Wisconsin Accountability Board, and Todd Barry is the president of the Wisconsin Taxpayers Alliance. A key linchpin to our 1974 legislation were aggregate limits on contributions. Uh, they were struck down effectively with the McCutcheon case uh, in 2014. This created a need to rewrite Wisconsin's campaign finance regulations, and of course it was in the hand of one group. These campaign finance changes which were enshrined in 2015 Act 117 were molded in secret by the Republican majority and quickly passed in the fall of 2015. But make no doubt about it, partisan control has been the driving force for change in the last several years. And it's linked to the fact that people with power use that power to control. And that's really what was, this was about. This led to the dissolution of the GAB and the birth of the Wisconsin Elections Commission under 2015 Wisconsin Act 118. And the Ethics Commission, like its, I don't know if you call it brother or sister agency, I'll leave it to them uh, to determine, um, the Elections 
of the Election Commission is an executive branch agency under the control of the legislature. While commissioners are evenly divided between Democratic and Republican appointees, the four legislative leaders directly appoint four commissioners and give the governor partisan lists for the remaining two slots. The new commissions are required to file a series of annual reports with the legislature and cannot commence an investigation on their own initiative. Any investigative expenditure exceeding $25,000 requires legislative approval. How the Ethics Commission and the Elections Commission perform remains to be seen. There are some very good people serving as commissioners, but they all come from a very partisan background. Uh, I always take issue with one of them who was serving on the Elections Board who says he never met a person who was nonpartisan. Um, maybe we should have invited him to this room, but uh, that is one of the problems is people's perception uh, when they hold those positions is everyone thinks the same way they do. And that's not the case. And we see this all the time in the political arena. I said at the beginning that this travelogue of what we are, uh, where we've been, and how we got here may breed some cynicism because the focus is on money. The reality is that elected officials are human and they're vulnerable to acting from self-interest, whether that is for personal gain or for political control. This is why society has historically developed laws to govern political and personal conduct. We ask the best from our elected officials, but we all must be vigilant in holding them accountable for the best. We need to observe what is being done on the campaign trail, in the halls of government, in the form of public discussion. There are lots of tools to do this. Uh, many of them were put in place by the Government Accountability Board, uh, by the Elections Board, and the Ethics Board. Um, there's some tremendous transparency websites uh, for tracking lobbyist activities. I think it's you know, serendipitous to have Todd here uh, as a watchdog on government finance. Um, you know, what they're committed to is exactly what we as citizens need, which is to delve into uh, the information that is available, because so much of it is shrouded and has to get revealed. So what I leave you with really is a challenge to be vigilant, to encourage and support others to be vigilant, to take advantage of everything that is available, and to demand much, much more. Uh, when we ask a lot of our elected officials, they will stand up. But it, it takes all of us to do this. It can't be something that just happens because, as I said, people act out of self-interest. And we recognize that, which is why we create oversight entities, why we create laws. Uh, with that, let me turn it over to Todd. Thank you. Todd Berry has been president of the Wisconsin Ta Taxpayers Alliance since 1994. Now in its 85th year, WizTax is a privately funded and widely inspected uh, nonpartisan organization dedicated to improving government through public policy research and citizen education. WizTax and Todd fervently believe more than ever that the public and the press need objective, factual information about their government. With bachelor's and doctoral degree from University of Wisconsin, 
He also holds master's degrees from Harvard University and the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. I reflected on, on the state budget uh, and state finances over the last 20, 25 years. And um, what I come away with thinking is that we've had pretty much uh, continual misbehavior <laughs> on both sides of the aisle for a very long time. And it, doesn't, it really doesn't matter which party's in control. Um, both parties um, spend to the last cent and leave nothing in reserve, so it's no wonder we have budget crises. Um, both of them have used the same accounting tricks over the last 20 years. Um, both of them have gotten to the end of, of a budget in the second year of the biennium spending more than they were bringing in. Both parties, almost every budget. And, uh, you know, when I was thinking about this, I would, I would get asked occasionally at, at meetings like this, why are they doing this? It seems so irrational or so counterintuitive to the way we behave as individuals. I mean, we try to keep some money tucked away for emergencies, and uh, um, we don't generally spend more than we have. Uh, we try to, we sort of expect that from public officials as well. And um, in thinking about the answer to why do we do this, I have sort of come to a perspective that's a little different um, than perhaps the subject of money in politics. It really applies more to politics generally. And that is that I've come to, to think that the way we write rules and laws and the way we design public and political institutions carries with it various carrots and sticks that drive people to behave in certain ways. And um, I thought I'd give you a few examples and then I'll apply this sort of to the notion of, of money and politics. Um, in the early part of the 20th century, one of the great reforms uh, was the notion of initiative and referendum in California and also primary elections. And it's interesting how California, you know, empowered people to petition to raise issues that they could take to their government. And as this has sort of played through the last almost 100 years, that process has really messed up California government. I mean, really. And both sides do it to each other. And they even pass referenda successively that almost conflict and contradict each other. Uh, and now we're to the point where anybody that feels aggrieved and has some money knows that they can hire people to go out and collect signatures and get a question on the ballot. And I, you sort of have to wonder, is, is this, is, was that such a great reformer? Or did they build a system that they thought they were knowing what they were doing, but it ended up having unintended consequences? That's definitely true fiscally. Um, the whole Proposition 13 notion and the, and the referenda that passed it um, have led to all sorts of goofy financial things in California. Um, another example, which I think is going to shock you a little bit, um, I would argue is primary elections. Because the idea, the goal in this state was that, again, we were going to empower voters 
rather than party bosses to make electoral decisions. I would argue that now the effect of the primary election is to actually empower special interest groups and cause political dysfunction. Um, because what we have now with increased interest group activity, and this is on the left and the right, and very sophisticated voter reach technology and low turnout primaries is that what happens is in a county like Dane, where there don't tend to be Republican candidates, Democratic primaries are the general election. And my experience is, living in these districts, is candidates try to run to the left to appeal to the people that are going to vote in those low turnout primaries. Well, I don't mean to pick on Dane County, because go to Waukesha. Um, and it's the same. Candidates run far to the right in the primary, and those are the ones that can tend to get elected. And by the way, the ideologues on both ends tend to support and nurture each other and endorse each other. And so what we end up with is very, not a lot of general election competition and really fairly extreme candidates in both parties. And when you get them to the legislature, there's no middle. <laughs> and so why, why should we be surprised that there's gridlock and dysfunction? And I wonder, you know, if that's the effect maybe of, of primary elections today. And I can give you a lot of other examples. The whole notion of, of you know, majority election candidates first past the post, plurality wins. I mean, it really um, strengthens a two-party system. And once that two-party system has been in place, and this, if you go to the Wisconsin statute, you'll see this, Democrats and Republicans will collude at times to make sure that they write the election laws to benefit them, the two institutional parties, and make sure that the independents and the third-party people can't uh, get on the ballot as easy, can't, can't compete uh, as easily. Um, the other thing that's happened over the last 100 years, and I think this is another example, um, is local government officials would rather have help solving problems, so they turn to the state. And Wisconsin, over half of Wisconsin's state budget is used to, to give money to local governments. And it's pretty much true at the state level. Um, you know, we'd, we'd rather turn to Washington to solve our problems. Um, the great irony in the case of healthcare, though, is Wisconsin had pretty much solved its health insurance problem before the federal government, but a lot of states hadn't. And uh, the point I'm trying to make is, as this shift in authority keeps moving up, there's more and more decisions packed into the legislature or into Congress, and it really raises the stakes of elections. So people are much more willing to spend a lot of money to influence it because the power is so concentrated in few units of government. You're listening to Money and Politics with speakers Kevin Kennedy and Todd Barry. Kevin Kennedy is the former director of the former Wisconsin Accountability Board, and Todd Barry is the president of the Wisconsin Taxpayers Alliance. Now, which now brings me to sort of the, the big example and the one that some of you are going to disagree with. My wife disagrees with me on this as a former legislator. Um, 
In the early 60s and 70s, um, there was a decision made, and the, the legislature was Republican, and, and uh, former Senator Knowles was one of, the, one of the folks involved. He went to the Ford Foundation and other places to get money to help uh, initiate uh, experimental reforms to improve the quality of legislative decision-making. And um, in talking to him before he passed away and what had transpired since, he confessed to me that he thought he had been wrong and that, that uh, perhaps he had gone down the wrong, the wrong path. But there's no question if you look at the 50s and 60s, 40s, 30s, that that legislature tended to be part-time. Um, they're farmers, small town business owners, lawyers, homemakers, uh, stay-at-home moms, whatever the word you choose to use. Um, but they had one foot in their home community and they almost always came out of a school board or a town board or a county board or something like that. And it's hard for me to argue that they did a terribly bad job when you think that they created the nation's first technical college system. They created a fairly strong and balanced school finance system really pretty early on, going way back into the 40s and 50s. Um, they built a pretty strong university um, and they built civil service and those kinds of notions uh, pretty early on in the country. Um, they did school consolidation, school district consolidation, which you can't, would never see this legislature touch or earlier ones or, or ones to come. I mean, they really took flack for that. So they did a lot of fairly big, uh, gutsy things. Um, what we have seen since the 70s as the legislative pay rose, as legislators got individual staff, multiple staff, um, it really became a full-time professional institution. In fact, scholars that study this say that Wisconsin is one of 10 to 12 states in the country that has a full-time professional legislature. And I guess where I come from is the norm now for a legislator of either party is they come out of college, they quite often have interned in the Capitol, worked for a legislature, legislator, they maybe work in multiple offices, they get to know the people, they get to know where the money is buried, they get to know the interest groups, they get to know the issues, and so when a legislative seat comes up, well, lo and behold, they run and they probably win because they're so well prepared. So we really have a, 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 a legislature and a politics today that is very professional and full-time. Now, some people think that's good, um, and you know, some of you probably do too, but here's what troubles me about it. Um, if it's your job, if it's your salary, if, and the benefits are quite good um, compared to you know, particularly outstate um, private sector jobs, you're interested, in, it's rational to want to preserve yourself. And that means you delay making hard decisions. Um, you don't make them, you push them under the rug, and then you wait until the, right after the election, the new legislature, and you try to 
cobble something together and have people forget it by the time you get to the next election. That has been true in state finances, no question. The other thing that's going on though is if this is your job and you really want it, it gives the party leaders incredible power because they control what committees you get on, they control what committees you chair, they control whether your bills move at all or just sit there and, and do nothing. Um, <clears throat> they arrange for ways to provide you campaign help, either in terms of bodies or money. And Kevin's right about the deep, dark secret about capital staff and elections, and it's still going on. Nothing has changed. It's now they very carefully observe the law, and people go on furloughs, go on leave, or go on vacation, and they're sent off to legislative districts to run campaigns at the beck and call of the party leaders. Uh, and both parties are doing it. Um, so as this has evolved, it's become a, an increasingly partisan environment where the power is very centralized and backbenchers, the you know, first, second termers, the people that haven't had a lot of experience, haven't gotten in good with the leadership, really don't have a lot of influence. Um, and I can think of examples on both sides of the aisle where dissident legislators, legislators that were willing to think for themselves, were punished. I mean, punished badly, uh, both sides of the aisle. And both parties have, in the last decade or two, encouraged their caucus members not to talk or socialize or, uh, with the opposition. So, <laughs> um, that's sort of my take on where we are now. Well, what does this have to do with money and politics? Um, I can't see a lot of evidence that building agencies and trying to design regulation has had a lot of effect. Because it seems like almost inevitably, um, because the stakes are so high now with government and power concentrated in Madison and Washington that people seem to find ways around it. Um, I think of public financing of election campaigns in Wisconsin. Uh, my wife ran with public funding grants uh, all three times she ran. Um, now, if you're in a heavily contested assembly district, it'll cost you 300,000, 500,000, I don't know what the, the latest going rate is. She never spent more than 17,000, and she was in arguably the most competitive two-party district in the state. Um, so um, the question for the money and politics issue is, do we need to try to design laws to somehow control this or tinker with it? regulate in some way, or is the real problem essentially how we design the political institutions and our election laws, and, and if we really want to solve the problem, do we have to create different carrots and sticks in the system itself? Um, so here are some wacky ideas. If the goal is to have a part-time part citizen kind of legislature, 
I mean, the easiest thing to do, and it'll never happen, is you simply cut their pay and their benefits and you go to a per diem system. Um, I'm usually asked in, at this point in a talk, well, what about term limits? And my usual answer is, if you give me no other choice than term limits, I'll take term limits. But it doesn't really get at the heart of the matter, and you end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, not that term limits haven't been seriously considered. The founders really considered it when they were uh, writing the Constitution. Washington, when he stepped down from the presidency, essentially was signaling, I'm, you know, I'm going to get out of here after two terms. Jefferson was a, a very strong believer in the notion of that citizen farmer lawmaker that went to do government for a while and then came back. Um, my favorite idea to try to get at this problem structurally, and, and if, if I told this to me when I was a 21, 22-year-old political science student, I would have been horrified. We have legislative districts that have become more populous over time as populations grow. Um, and what that means is the distance psychologically between the constituent and the legislator gets more distant. Uh, the legislator becomes more anonymous. The campaign costs increase. It's easier to do attack ads from outside because the individual constituent constituent doesn't even know the legislator. Um, and so I wonder if you cut the size of legislative constituencies from what is now approaching 60,000 to something like 15 or 20,000, whether that might have some positive benefits. Um, now what if this of course means if, is that you're not going to have 99 assembly people, you're going to have 300 or more, and then everybody goes horrors. Um, Although New Hampshire isn't doing bad with 400 legislators, believe it or not, and, and each one is representing a couple thousand people, and the party control shifts back and forth. Um, but some advantages, um, you're more than likely to know your legislator and your legislator to know you. You're going to make it less likely that outside interest groups can impact the election because there is going to be that personal contact which is going to trump you know, sort of attack ads and gossip and rumor. Um, in a constituency that size, it also means that there's less of a time commitment to being a legislator, so it really could be a part-time job. Um, it's gonna, it would really decrease campaign costs just because it's a much smaller district. I would argue also it would make it much harder for outside interest groups to influence things. Um, it, because suddenly you don't have four or five assembly people in Madison, you have 15, 20. I mean, are, are outside interest groups going to buy network cable TV advertising to try to influence a race like that? I, I don't know. I, certainly the, the cost-benefit ratio isn't there. Um, so that's one sort of wacky idea. I also wonder whether, why do we have a Senate assembly that have become totally the same? I mean, the Senate is essentially a place where assembly people go to die. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you, you, have a, you have an electoral base and you are going to be elected a senator if you, have a, if you decide to run. Um, maybe uh, senators should have 
only one eight or ten year term. Each one be elected each year, every year from a from a district. Maybe the Senate should be a nonpartisan body and elected in the spring. I'm, again, I don't know, just another crazy idea. Um, if the goal is to reduce the partisanship and the polarization and the gridlock, I mean, I, I think step one, and, and this is a no-brainer, is you have independent nonpartisan legislative districting like they have in Iowa, and California has another approach that might have merit. Um, don't kid yourself that either party is for this. Because if you go back 10, 20, 30, 40 years, there are wonderful examples of how each party was dying to sock it to the other, and did. It's just the Republicans are the last ones that got up to bat. Again, maybe one house should be nonpartisan. Um, maybe we should change the way we vote. Instead of voting for one candidate only, maybe we should rank them, which some communities in the U.S. do and some countries do. Maybe we should do what Washington State has and, and now California and have a blanket primary. In other words, there is no partisan primary. So there's no running to the extreme left and right to see who can be crazier. Um, and the, the top two vote-getters, regardless of party, go on to the general election. Well, think of all the heavily Republican or heavily Democratic legislative districts in Wisconsin would suddenly have contests in November. It might be between two Democrats or two Republicans, but at least there'd be a contest. Um, another way to vote. Maybe we shouldn't vote for one candidate or even write them. Maybe we should just essentially mark all those that we think are acceptable. And whoever gets the most acceptables gets elected. Um, Think about the dynamics of all of these, because suddenly you're trying to appeal to a broader constituency um, and to both parties and to multiple factions of, of each party. Um, another idea that unfortunately went down the tubes in Illinois with constitutional reform was multi-member districts. Um, <clears throat> But the one notion is you have an, a, a larger legislative district, you are going to elect three uh, legislators, um, you get two votes to vote for two. Well, the dynamic of that becomes quite often that, it, particularly if you're only each party is only allowed to nominate two candidates, is you get in a Democratic district two, two Democrats and a Republican, a Republican district vice versa. Um, and the Republican that's going to come out of a Democratic district or the Democrat that's going to come out of a Republican district are going to look different than the ones that come out of party primaries. I'm getting too long here, so I'll, I'll wrap it up. No question that there's all sorts of things in state law that could be looked at uh, to end the two-party monopoly. We don't allow multi-party endorsements in Wisconsin. In New York, you can run on multiple party lines. It's a, it makes lesser parties uh, more viable. Um, here's a really crazy and some would argue anti-democratic idea. But maybe one house, the candidates shouldn't be nominated by nominating petitions, but by councils of local government officials from county and municipal government. Think about the implications of what that might be. Final one or two goals, what could we do to 
reduce campaign costs, lessen outside influence, et cetera. Um, and by the way, you're never going to solve the rich candidate problem, okay? And both parties do it, and the majority of the U.S. Congress, um, a lot of them are millionaires. But I, I do think some of the ideas I floated up till now get at that notion of campaign costs. Another thing we could do is shorten campaigns. The, the, the Canadians and the British and the Australians do that by the Prime Minister dissolving Parliament and asking the Governor General or the Queen or whatever to call an election. I mean, maybe a governor should serve a five-year term and be authorized to call and you know, just dissolve everybody and call an election any time in that five-year term uh, with the election to be held within 60 days. The whole, the whole calendar gets compressed. Maybe we should go back and look at tax credits um, in terms of we don't have public financing, but maybe if people um, designated an amount on their property tax or income tax form uh, and designated that to go to a particular account, either a candidate account or a county party account, that then the state would match that. And so you'd be creating pools of money for a wide variety of people. Another thing you could do, which would really change the dynamics and scare some people, is maybe one house should either be entirely or partly elected on a proportional basis, where you have a slate of candidates for a party or a group of independents running, and you vote for that slate and the seats are apportioned proportionately. It's pretty hard to run attack ads against one person when they're on a slate. What I'm trying to say is that there's lots of discussion about campaign finance and money and politics, and we tend to look at the symptoms and then say, how can we write a law or design an agency to address that? And I guess all I'm trying to say is, maybe the problem is the way we designed the the, the process and the structures. And maybe if we thought about this anew, we'd come up with some ideas that not only would diminish partisanship and polarization and extremism, but at the same time, perhaps make campaigns shorter, maybe cheaper, um, perhaps a little more polite. And uh, that's sort of the thought I'll leave with you. <laughs> Thanks much. You've been listening to Money in Politics with speakers Kevin Kennedy and Todd Barry. Kevin Kennedy is the former director of the former Wisconsin Accountability Board, and Todd Barry is the president of the Wisconsin Taxpayers Alliance. The talk took place on October 5th. 2016 at the Capitol Lakes Retirement Center in Madison and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. There are study materials on the League's position of money in politics at their website at lwvdanecounty.org. To find out what else the League is up to, go to their website at lwvdanecounty.org.